0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning. I hope that you're ready to continue our sermon series of the Gospel of Luke. Um... It always seems like at the beginning of the week, I'm like, I'm just gonna write, you know, a really light-hearted sermon, and it's gonna be all fluffy and lovely and nice, and then God starts putting stuff on my heart as I study through His Word. And um, so, uh, buckle up, just to be safe. Um, anyways, th- th- there is a lot to go through as well this morning, so we're just gonna jump right into the passage. So please turn with me now to Luke five twenty-seven to thirty-two. Luke five twenty-seven to thirty-two. I added a little part in brackets at the beginning just so we remember where we're at in the story. So it says, after this, so after he healed two men, a leper and a paraplegic, and even more cleansed them of their sins, all to the chagrin of the scribes and Pharisees there, Jesus then went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right. So, most of you are probably aware that tax season is upon us. Who's excited about that? You guys are weird. Who here's not excited about that? That's, yeah, exactly. I mean, whether whether you're excited about doing your taxes or whatever, no one really likes paying taxes, right? Come on. No one really... Um, I'm sure we can logically accept and understand the necessity of them in order to pay for city infrastructure and government programs and healthcare and all that boring stuff and so on. It's, it's just never enjoyable to have our money taken away from us, right? Um, of course, this dislike of taxes hasn't changed over the years. In fact, in Judea at the time of Jesus' ministry, having to pay taxes was even more despised for them, especially because most of their taxes didn't even go to their own nation or their own king, but rather towards propping up the occupying empire of Rome. So their money went straight to their enemy, to Caesar. And therefore, it could, could be easily argued by them that these taxes were infringing on, on their personal freedoms, their religious rights, and, and their laws, right? And, and this is why actually later, later on during Jesus' ministry, a Pharisee asks Jesus one day if he thinks that they should pay taxes or if they should resist. And so in response, Jesus first reminds them that it's Caesar's picture on their coins. And then he famously exclaims, so give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? The point being, yes, pay your taxes. The, that, that's, that's his problem, right? But even beyond that, obey your government as long as it doesn't f- truly affect your ability to practice your faith. Um, but first of all, the reason that I bring this, this story up is because we can see from that dialogue that this is on their minds, right? That, that most citizens of Judah probably didn't enjoy paying their taxes to Rome. They probably hated doing it. And, and furthermore, this is one of the reasons that, that any Jew who willingly worked as a tax collector, was usually then uh, seen as a traitor and, and even as a sinner against God and his law. So they didn't like these guys. Fair enough. Especially because these tax collectors sometimes also took a little extra off the top to fill their own pockets. So it's kind of like in the story of Robin Hood. We all know the story of Robin Hood, right? No one likes the Sheriff of Nottingham because he collected the taxes from all the citizens, even from the poor and the sick, right? Just just to prop up and 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 just to prop up and fill the coffers of, of the greedy and illegitimate ruler, Prince John. Best Disney movie still. Yep. Yeah. Uh Who to Nanny. All right. Um, man, <laughs> I had to go there, anyways. Maybe you know, maybe the citizens actually, maybe the citizens of Judea would have actually liked Jesus to have been their Robin Hood, right? Sweeping in and defying the government and overthrowing Rome and stealing back their hard-earned money for them. But no, Jesus actually walks up to a tax collector while he's taking taxes. He's, He's working, and he walks up to him, a guy by the name of Levi. And he doesn't rebuke him. And he doesn't pull a bow and arrow on him and demand that he that he stop charging taxes. Instead, he calls him to follow him and be his disciple. That's crazy. And the Pharisees witnessing this, they, they would have been floored and maybe even disgusted by this turn of events. Did he just call that tax collector, that sinner? To follow him? Yes. Yes, he did. And, and guess what? That tax collector would one day write his own witness account of Jesus' ministry in what we now call the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew being the name which Jesus would later give Levi. In other words, Levi's whole life was completely and eternally transformed in that moment. So while the Pharisees and others stood in shock and confusion, Levi wasn't confused at all as to how he'd respond to this invitation of supernatural grace and love. He accepted it immediately. He left everything and followed after Jesus. And and so just think of the initial implication here. We're going to unpack this more throughout the message. Think think of the initial implication. Being called a sinner... And being called a traitor and being shunned by the religious people day in and day out, how effective was that? Not at all, right? It did nothing to change his lifestyle or make him leave his tax booth. But yet, the one and only thing that got him to leave everything is being called by Jesus. His kindness led him to repentance. So here's the, the question for us that we're going to be going through, how should this change the way we think about ministering to the lost or in the way we treat or speak to sinners in the world, even if they're government officials who we're at odds with? How should this change the way we think about ministering to the lost or in the way we treat or speak to sinners in the world, even if they're government officials who we're at odds with? I feel like that's pretty relevant right now. We'll come back to that question in a bit, but before we do, I want to point out Levi's first act as a newly saved and accepted disciple of Jesus. What What does he do? He throws a huge party, right? He throws a huge banquet for Jesus, and he invites all his friends and his co-workers to, to come, right? This lo- a large crowd of, of fellow tax collectors and other officials like that. And, and it seems like Levi's so excited about his salvation that he wants his friends and his co-workers to celebrate with him, but also to meet Jesus as well. The late theologian Warren Wiersbe writes, he was so overjoyed at his salvation experience that he invited many of his friends to rejoice with him. So I think, first of all, we should be both inspired and challenged by by Levi's reaction here, or maybe convicted is the right word. First, that he rejoices in knowing Jesus, and then secondly, in, in how he creates a space to give others an opportunity to meet Jesus as well. I love that. That's his initial response. Praise Jesus, tell other people about Jesus. Unfortunately, his is the reaction that we often only see in new believers. Believers who have just been saved, who haven't forgotten how wonderful it is to be forgiven of sin and, and called by Christ in a new life, when the only thing on their mind is just to tell everyone else about it. Because the, the sad reality, I think, is that for many believers, we, we, we tend to forget this, this amazing joy of our salvation as time goes on, right? We slowly lose that joy then of speaking the gospel to others. Maybe over time we've become embarrassed or ashamed of it, or maybe we get distracted by civilian pursuits, as Apostle Paul calls it, you know, the busyness of life or, or it's the circumstances of life. Maybe we start presuming on God's grace, or maybe we neglect growing in the word to the point that our relationship With the Lord becomes dry. But for whatever reason, you know, it it just seems like our passion for the gospel can start to dwindle over time. But we're not supposed to lose that passion, it's supposed to grow in us. One of the main reasons the Holy Spirit resides within each believer is for that purpose to joyfully and powerfully share the love and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with the world. That's why we're here. We should be like Levi. We should be inviting the unsaved or the unchurched to our backyard for a barbecue or even to church or to youth group or community group or to watch church online where where they can be introduced to Jesus. And so I encourage you, each one of you, right now even, pray about people in your life that don't know the Lord. Friends, family, coworkers, classmates, or neighbors, or whoever the Spirit puts on your heart. And then ask the Holy Spirit to give you the opportunity and the courage and boldness and the words and most of all, the passion. The passion to share the joy of your salvation with them. To, to, to Pray that the Lord would give you a compassionate desire to invite them to know and experience Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Make that commitment right now. Right this moment, think of somebody. Lock that person into your mind and in your heart. Not, not as a project to get them saved, but a, as a friend, as someone you love, that you want to share Jesus, the love of Jesus with too. I mean, imagine if each person here shared Jesus Christ with someone in the next month and then in their excitement of knowing the Lord, like Levi, shared him with someone else and on and on and on. Imagine that. Because I, I do truly believe that we're approaching this season. God's been preparing us. We're approaching a season which Jesus describes in Matthew nine thirty-seven to 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God's calling us, each of you, to be his his co-laborers for the gospel, to bring in the harvest. We just have to be willing to go, first of all, willing to go. And secondly, and in the same vein, we actually need to get our priorities straight so we can actually focus on the task we've been given. What I mean is as the church I think we do tend to become inward focused at times where a concern is always with ourselves. Let's admit it. But also, when we do engage with the world, sometimes it can be in ways or with attitudes that aren't very constructive and possibly hindering to our mission in proclaiming the gospel. For example, maybe... As the church, we can stop placing so much attention on things like complaining with the government and each other about COVID regulations. I mean, sure, we can have our differing opinions. Fine. I have my opinion. I have my my opinion. You'll never know what it is. I'm too busy talking about Jesus, right? Right? So let's seriously stop spending so much of our time and energy on these civilian pursuits, arguing and debating about them, stirring up controversy and conspiracy theories, making mountains out of molehills. Instead, we should be giving our time and energy to our victorious calling as Christ's disciples, bringing in the harvest, loving those in need, especially at this time when there's so many people in need. There's so much opportunity. And remembering that we're citizens of God's kingdom over and above our earthly one. And therefore, we should be investing in what eternally matters. Seriously, if, like Jesus, we, we, we cared as much about the lost and the broken as we do protecting our own self interests and worrying about our religious rights during this pandemic, right, the church would actually be overflowing with the fruit of the harvest. But instead, it seems like, from what I've seen and heard, it seems like the world's been more turned off by the church than ever before because of our attitudes during this time. So, so what does that actually tell us? Have we, the body of Christ, responded appropriately to the times and culture we're living in? Have we been humbly allowing his spirit to truly work in us as Jesus Christ's remnants of hope, as a non-anxious presence in the midst of a crisis, and as voices of his light and truth in this time? Or have we lost the plot? Have we been wasting this, the opportunity of this moment by freaking out and focusing on our own wants and individual rights at the expense of saving souls? Have we only been adding to the disunity, hopelessness, and chaos? of our society with our senseless debates and impulsive quarrels and controversies and by impatiently impatiently dying on the wrong hills instead of peacefully laying down our lives for others in Jesus name and before you m- get offended if you are here's our answer oh it's in the bible second timothy 2:22 to 25 so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing, not, not a little bit, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, kind to everyone, able to teach Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. All right, rant over, maybe. But again, Jesus himself models this gentleness and love when he goes straight over to this supposed evil government official. While he's still sitting at his tax booth, and, and, and again, guess what? To the disappointment of the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't quarrel with him, condemn him, or call him out, or even resist him. He doesn't even post a passive-aggressive meme or YouTube video about Levi's actions on his Facebook page, or even complain about his policies and unfair taxes and how they've infringed upon his religious rights and freedoms, not even behind his back, or even on Twitter. What? Right? No. He loved him. And he gave him grace. And he called him with compassion and gentleness to follow him. In other words, the only sure way we can truly change people's hearts and mindsets is to share the invitation of Jesus' salvation with them. In a way that's loving, kind, compassionate, and Gentle. Also, that God can then bring them into a place of repentance and knowledge of the truth. That should be our priority. Again, as I said earlier, Levi sat at the tax booth day in and day out doing his job, and all the complaining and hate and judgments and resistance and quarreling in the world didn't change him or move him, but as soon as he encountered Jesus, His life was changed forever. And so this is why I strongly believe that as the church, we need to start repenting of our self-interested and impatient attitudes. I'm part of that too. We need to start taking a look at the plank of entitlement and self-righteousness in our own eyes. And remember that, that our true freedom and righteousness is eternally secure and found only in Christ alone. Whether we have it in our country or not, And by the way, the majority of Christians in the world right now don't even have religious freedoms in their own countries that we're complaining about. Think about that. And that doesn't affect their freedom and righteousness in Christ. So let's start asking the Lord and not our feelings to help us start prioritizing and focusing on loving others and sharing Jesus with the lost before he comes again. Yes, even if it has to be over Zoom, or if, if, if we have to be six feet apart with our masks on, if that's what it takes, then that's what we'll do because that's our purpose. So speaking of which, who were the self-interested and opinionated complainers stirring up controversy in this passage? It's not a trick question. The Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke 5.30 says, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, we need to ask ourselves, honestly, who do we currently resemble in this passage? I'll let it hang on that question. So it seems as though the Pharisees who are witnessing this banquet take place, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners at a table, they're not very impressed about this situation. But hold up. Have have you ever thought to wonder why these Pharisees were so abhorred by this? Or why they had such an issue with being around sinners? On that note, I think we're actually... Gonna, well, I know we're actually going to be spending a lot of time with the Pharisees and scribes because Jesus did. So as we make our way through Luke, we're going to be seeing them often. And so I, I think it is important that we actually get a bigger picture, a better picture of, of who these guys really were and what they were all about. Because to be honest, I think we have kind of a one-sided opinion about them. I think we've actually been taught to dislike them and think the worst of them at times haven't we? Whenever the Pharisees comes up, we're like, mm, those Pharisees, right? And then we act like Pharisees. Um, but but really, though, what's their deal? What's, what's their goal? What's their motivation here, especially in constantly questioning Jesus like this? Who are these guys? Well, we're going to try to answer that. Um, first of all, it seems as though they started as a religious social movement, maybe as early as the Jewish return from exile in Babylon. There was no group that actually called themselves Pharisees. They would never say, we're Pharisees. But it's kind of like hipsters today. Like, they're not going to admit they're hipsters, but we're like, look at those hipsters, right? It's just what they, it's just what they were. Um, so... They definitely became more widespread as a, as a movement after the Maccabean Revolt ended in 160 B.C., and they probably had a big role in establishing both the idea of the synagogue, which is centered around Scripture, learning Scripture and reading it, and, and also in developing rabbinic Judaism uh, w- after the temple was destroyed in 70 C.E. So it's how, how, how Jews practiced their faith without the temple, right? Um, so, all right, before we get into their beliefs and motivations, though, I, w- I want to emphasize a few things about the setting and, and also some other Jewish groups and movements that existed at that time, just to give us a little bit of clarity and context. Uh, so first of all, it's important to understand that when the Greeks and the Romans came into town as prophesied in Daniel, do you guys remember that in Daniel? Um, so to speak, they, they, they occupied Judah they, they also brought with them their own religious worldview and their culture of Hellenism, which obviously would have conflicted with the Jewish religion and their way of life. Um, so while Hellenism had some good, has had some morally good ideas, it mostly tended to be pagan, very hyper-individualistic, and extremely materialistic in its pursuit of happiness and pleasure. Does that sound familiar to us? Because it is. That, that is pretty much the same culture and worldview which we Westerners still live in today. So like us today, and even, or, or even like Daniel in Babylon, right? The question the Jewish people at that time had to ask themselves is, how are we going to live out our faith and respond to this? How, how are we going to s- respond to both being occupied and controlled as a nation and also to this conflicting and secularist worldview that comes with it. So how are they re- going to respond and live out their faith through this? So historically, we can actually see five specific groups who each responded in their own way, and they're all mentioned throughout the New Testament. We all see them show up. We can see five specific groups who each responded in their own way. So the first one, the first response that we, that we can see is, they're called The zealots. The zealots. So they responded to the invading tyranny in Hellenistic culture through resistance and violence. So to, to the Greeks and to the Romans, they'd be like terrorists. To the Jews, they'd be national heroes, right? So rebels, rebel alliance, zealots. So the most notable being the Maccabees. Uh, they, they miraculously somehow drove the Greeks out of the country all the while while the candle in the temple was still lit, and that's what they celebrated Hanukkah. So those are the Maccabees. So the first group is the Zealots. That's how they decided to respond. The second group is the Sadducees. They weren't so Sadducee, as the song uh, tells us. They were actually very happy and rolling around in lots of riches. And I'll tell you why. So they consisted of the high priest of the temple and his followers who believed that they could both embrace both God's law and Hellenistic culture at the same time. But as Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and Mammon, especially if your job is to run the temple. So it comes as no surprise that these Sadducees, who were in charge along with their families, often sided with Rome, and actually became. And, and we see that siding with Rome in Jesus' trial, right? Uh, and, and they actually became very wealthy and almost mob-like with the power they were given. They kind of controlled everything and everyone. And some think that the temple guards were actually just their goons that did their bidding for them, which is backed up by history. Anyways, they actually met their end and ceased to exist when the temple was destroyed. So they lost all their power. Uh, Judgment, right? Most notable of these uh, Sadducees would be Caiaphas, and he was the high priest who presided over Jesus' trial and was actually appointed to the position, not by God, but by a Roman prefect. All right. So we have Zealots, we have the Sadducees. The next group to respond to, 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 to Rome and the Hellenistic culture was the Essenes. They're called the Essenes. So unlike the Sadducees, who tried to simultaneously embrace both the law and Hellenistic culture, the Essenes felt like the best response would be just to run away from it all. Run away from society, which they did. Like Catholic monks, <laughs> they, it's kind of tempting though, right? I don't blame them. They, they, they went off on their own to create a commune in the desert where they devoted themselves to the reading and knowledge of Scripture and also had very strict adherence to the law as well. So the downside of that was they, they had no opportunity and no one to share their knowledge with. Right? They just stored up all their knowledge to themselves and then they died. Most notable of these Essenes were the Essenes from Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were recently discovered. So those are the most notable. So we can, we can thank them for running away because they, they um, kept the, the scriptures safe. Um, all right, so the next group to respond, number four, the Herodians. You can probably guess who these guys were. Uh, as devoted political followers of King Herod and the Herodian dynasty, this Jewish sect responded to Hellenism by basically just embracing it fully, just joining right into the culture and society, right? Also for them, political independence for Judea was paramount and they, they thought it would only be achieved through politics and theocracy. That sounds familiar too, right? Uh, this is also why they would have felt threatened by Jesus who was called the king of the Jews because that's what they also called King Herod. Um, all right, so we have these four responses Right? to run away, to embrace it fully, to try to embrace both, to try to fight against it with resistance. And then finally, we get to the Pharisees. This is the fifth response to Hellenistic culture in Rome. So while the Pharisees were anti-Roman rule, anti-Roman rule and also against embracing Hellenism, this religious social movement felt that the best response to these issues, to this culture, was not by running from it or through political resistance or through violence, but rather through increased obedience and strict adherence to the law of God. Their response was to try to be even more faithful than ever before. So ultimately, their underlying hope and goal was eschatological. They believed that when all of Israel finally and faithfully obeyed the Torah once again, that's when God would reestablish their kingdom, like he did after the Babylonian exile. So this also means that they, they believed, according to Scripture, that the reason their nation was currently occupied by Rome was precisely because of their nation's collective sin and disobedience against God. So this is what they believe. So this is why, this is why, they, we have to understand this. So this is why they desired and believed that all citizens, not just those in the temple, all citizens could and should follow the law in their everyday lives so that God would be pleased with them and then once again restore them as a nation. So that they even created additional laws and held on to oral traditions as well in order to help them achieve their adherence to it. To make sure that they, they were living righteously. And, and I should note that the scribes are often mentioned in the same breath as them because they were also adherents to the law and basically like the lawyers of the day. So some scribes were probably called Pharisees and vice versa. So they're always hanging out together. All right. So here's the question. So out of all of these responses to Hellenistic culture and Roman rule, which one looks the most biblical and faithful to the law? The Pharisees. Surprisingly enough, it's the Pharisees' response. They desired to combat the Hellenistic culture and Roman tyranny by being in the world, but not of it through obeying God and teaching his law to others. They desired to see the nation of Israel become righteous before God so that their nation would be restored in holiness. So they actually had really good intentions. So let's cut them some slack. Though, knowing their beliefs and their motivations it's no wonder that they would get angry and disgusted whenever they saw someone unclean or whenever they saw someone living a sinful lifestyle. In their mind, those sinners were the very reason their nation was still being punished by God. So we can understand their, their motivation and their anger here now, right? And in, because in one sense, they're not wrong. We do need to become righteous and obedient in order to be restored to God. They have the right idea, but unfortunately, they tend to go about it all wrong. This is where they they mess up. And, And this is also why Jesus basically tells the Pharisees over and over again in various ways as he's debating with them, that while they're so close, they're still so far away. So close in their, desire and obedience, or their, sorry, in their desire for obedience and righteousness. But so far, because unfortunately, they couldn't see that their pursuit of righteousness was impossible in their own strength and in their own works. Worse than that, they'd lost the plot and started to see themselves as being better or more righteous than everyone else because of their good works. They become self righteous, judging and looking down on those who weren't as lawful or as holy as them, blaming them for Judah's plight. So, Jesus at one point, he calls them whitewashed tombs, right? Which means like they're modeling righteousness and good works on the outside, but they're still very empty and, and, and sinful inside their heart where it matters the most. As uh, Tibidi Anyabwili writes, They apparently think they themselves are not sinners. They ought to take a place at the table as sinners needing to be with Christ, but they remain blind to their own condition before God. So, blinded by their self-righteousness, they often fail to see their own lingering sin, and this, therefore, caused many of them to deny their need of a Savior who could make them truly righteous, And likewise, it also kept them from having compassion on other sinners. This was their biggest folly. They lacked compassion for other sinners. And so, of course, when they see Jesus partying it up with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, it's no wonder that they're genuinely disgusted and confused. From their perspective, they're thinking, how could Jesus do this? Those sinners are the reason we're being disciplined by God and the reason we're under Roman control. Even worse, those sinners are actually helping the Romans by collecting our taxes. But I think as, as Christians, we can, we can also wrongfully have this, 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 this type of attitude at, at times as well towards sinners, right? And therefore, we're also often unsure then as as to how to approach other sinners, if at all. Well, Jesus shows us. He goes straight to them. He goes straight to them, and he encounters them where they're at. Not to condone their sinful lifestyle or to join in, but in order to befriend them and lovingly invite them by his grace into a new life. He sees them not as the sinners they presently are, but who they're truly meant to be. And the Pharisees seem to think Jesus is also threatening his own holiness by by dining with these unclean sinners. They they probably felt like the best way to deal with them is to shun them and and condemn them or shame them until they turn from their evil ways. But Jesus' approach is the complete opposite, he has compassion and and this is how he met each one of us as well right and in Luke 5:31-32 he tells them why he tells them why this is this is why he approaches sinners and hangs out with them Luke 5:31-32 Jesus replied to them it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance so a doctor, of course, would be pretty terrible at his job if he refused to be around sick people, pretty, pretty ineffective. So this is why Jesus' approach to sinners, the spiritually sick, is to be around them, right? To, to befriend them and have compassion on them. His desire is to, come, is to come to them so he can bring healing to their souls, to invite them into that new life within his kingdom, to, to transform them into who they're meant to be. And eventually, he'll even lay down his life on the cross for these sinners in order to secure their salvation for eternity. But on the flip side of a coin, a a doctor can also do nothing for those who don't want to be helped. And this is Jesus' point by by saying that he's come for the sick and not for the righteous. Since the Pharisees think they've already achieved righteousness and and holiness by their own works, most of them have have no room in their heart to accept Jesus' help and therefore continually reject his invitation to be saved. But Jesus tells us that those who, who come to him and admit they're sick, th- those who come to him with repentant hearts and acknowledge their sin, it's, it's those who, who will find that he's filled with mercy and grace enough to forgive them of it. And, and that he's more than ready and willing to heal them, to cover them in his righteousness and adopt them into his kingdom. And again, this is also a reminder that we, as his disciples, as fishers of men, right, need to model Christ and follow his and even Levi's example in the way we approach the spiritually sick and lost in the world. Again, even if they're government officials who are at odds with. As Tabithi Aniabwile writes, we cannot call people to repentance if we are never with them. We cannot reach sinners without going where sinners are. They are not likely to come where we are. They find our parties boring. They find our fun boring. And that's okay. We expect them to. They have tastes for this world while we have tastes for heaven. And those differing tastes are not easily joined together. So it creates a burden for us to cross a bridge to reach them without adopting their tastes. But this is what the Lord does here. The Lord attends Levi's party with the spiritual well being of sinners in mind. The Lord does not sin with them, rather, He seeks to save them. And we must follow His example while also remembering that we are not the Savior. So, this is the mark of truth, discipleship, and evangelism it's steeped in compassion and grace, it humbly puts others before itself. It loves and befriends sinners. It gently invites them to know Jesus. And this is who we're called to be as the church. Not looking at our own interests only while shunning or resisting those who we think don't belong or who restrict our way of life, just as the Pharisees do, but rather to go out into the world with the joy of our salvation and with Christ crucified at the forefront of our hearts in order to befriend sinners just like us and meet them where they're at. To seek out and prioritize the sick and the lost so that they can come and be found by the great physician, Jesus Christ, so he can heal them and give them new life in his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father I, I thank you so much for who you are that you are a God of compassion that you are a God of mercy and grace a God of love that you prove that love in sending Jesus Christ to us Lord God and I thank you that, that you are willing to, to meet us to meet each and every one of us where w- we were at as as sinners, as, as enemies, Lord. And yet you came, you came to us to invite us and then you died in our place so that we could find forgiveness, be covered in your righteousness, become citizens of your kingdom, Lord, to be set free from the chains of our sin, from the chains of this world, Lord God. I thank you so much for that, that you've rescued us. And oh Lord, I pray that, that, that you would fill us with, with, with thankfulness, with thankful hearts, and, and, and therefore a, a passionate desire to tell others about it. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom and, and compassionate hearts to, to approach others in our lives and in this world, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, with, with your gospel. Lord, that we wouldn't shun them or look down on them like, like the Pharisees do, Lord. And, like, I, I, and, I, and I repent for when we have done that, Lord. But that we would see them as, as, as you see them, Lord. As who they're meant to be. And that, that would fill us with such a, such a longing to share your love and your grace and your mercy with them. The good news of your salvation. Pray that we would not shy away from that, that it would become our priority as Christians, as the church. That we would proclaim your name for the glory of God. I pray all this in your mighty name. Jesus. Amen.